Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome to Wimbledon Relived here on the Tennis Podcast, episode 12. We have arrived at the match that many most possibly consider to be the greatest tennis match of all time, certainly the greatest men's tennis match of all time. And this actually is an episode that has been causing me a little bit of anxiety um, over the past couple of weeks. I've had this one looming on the horizon. I've been thinking, how on earth can... Can I personally possibly add to the myriad of wonderful words that have been said about this match over the course of the last 12 years? And how can David Law possibly add to the wonderful words that he said about the match in the documentary Strokes of Genius (laughs) that was released a year or so ago? So it's over to you, Matt, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I get nervous all the time talking about tennis and whether i can add to the conversation so what what you're feeling now is how i feel going into every podcast really <laughs> yeah i have no idea <laughs> david you've already given your best material to uh, a documentary so what mm. have you got how are you gonna what have you got for us today nothing i've just taped i've just got the uh, the documentary hooked up and i'm about to press play <laughs> I did re- I did rewatch it this morning Strokes of Genius. I mean and it is an absolutely magical illustration of of a rivalry and how one match can sum up a rivalry. It is yeah. it it's a work of art that documentary and and you're a fantastic contributor to it. I do just genuinely worry <laughs> that you've used your best stuff. No, no. See, when I did it, I knew one day we would relive it. And I thought, right, I'm going to get my sizable sleeves and I'm going to stick something up them. Because you were there, weren't you? I mean, the reason that that your contribution to that documentary came about is because you were mentioned in the book that John Wertheim wrote about 
um, the final, not long afterwards, it came out about a year after the final, didn't it? Um, that book was called Strokes of Genius. And your position in the Five Live commentary box to start with, and your later position up on high in the gods, being asked to provide statistical analysis for, for Five Live listeners, that was that was something that John John referenced in the book. Mm. Yeah, well, it happened to clash this particular final with the British Grand Prix. And uh, as a result of that, we as a radio station came on air late with the final of Wimbledon. Um, and as a result of that, it was it was put on to our sister station, Five Live Sports Extra, which is a digital station. And because they'd got one commentary team in our main box, which is courtside, really uh, 50 feet from the players, it meant that I went upstairs right underneath the the roof in another little booth where you, you know the players are miles away it feels like they're little dots uh, and I commentated on the first three games of the final um, always remember Pat Cash rushing up to sit next to me for this commentary and then after three games going back down because they were they'd finished the Grand Prix and they were on to the rest of it so I only did the first three games but the first point of the match is epic and it kind of sums up the entire match in a single point several strokes great great shots both players having their moment in a single rally and ending with a Nadal winner um but I I just always remember the the moment the players rose from their chairs after the coin toss and and all the the formalities beforehand and the noise I mean I I've heard noise on center court before particularly when you think of Andy Murray playing but I don't think I've ever heard noise split between two players quite like that that when they rose from the chair this is their third Wimbledon final against each other in a row and they are so far and away the best two players on the planet male players and it was just electric do, do you think they let some extra plebs in to add to the atmos <laughs> <laughs> Looking around the stadium, I'd say yes. Uh. <laughs> um, just to give you a, a feeling of what was happening in 2008, besides the, the best men's tennis match of all time, it was the year that CERN inaugurated the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the is. world's largest particle accelerator. So big year for physics. <laughs> My school did a trip to that and I declined to go on it because I didn't think it would be interesting. <laughs> what? I wasn't you had, interested. You had bigger fish to fry. Yeah. <laughs> there was tennis on, Catherine. That is such a baller move, Matt. What did you do? To say the Large Hadron Collider isn't interesting enough. I know. I think I just went to school. It was a really bad decision. Well, were you sitting at school with your phone out? Yeah, with like four some... people who had been left behind who didn't go on this trip. Watching Kitzbühel. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it was also the year that Fidel Castro stepped down as president of Cuba after 50 years in power. Uh, the press leaked, or I think it was Jon Snow, actually, Channel 4 News presented, that leaked uh, that Prince Harry had been uh, serving in the armed forces in Afghanistan. The MacBook Air is launched. Thanks very much, Apple, because I'm reading this to you from an, a MacBook Air. Feel free to send me a free one also for that mention. All You're welcome. All are welcome, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Honda started selling zero emission hydrogen fuel cell powered cars. 
And that's all I've got for 2008. I can't think of any notable 11 or 12 year olds that were born. Anyone know of any? I'm I'm mostly interested in what Matt was doing. (laughs) Come on then, what were you doing, Matt? Well, during this specific match, I was being a brat because I had <laughs> I had during this year changed my allegiance from a Nadal supporter to a Federer supporter. Um, he had hung up his three quarter length pirate pants. Yeah, it, it, we we've seen the picture, folks. He was at Wimbledon in three quarter length pirate pants some years before. How many years before? Uh, a couple of years before, yeah, two thousand and six. Right. And you've defected by this point. Yes, I have. I was as confused in the mid-noughties as David was in the 90s about who to who to support as a tennis fan. Uh, but I actually remember the exact moment that my allegiance switched. It was the 2008 uh, Australian Open when Federer was pushed to five sets against Tips Arovic because I'd always I'd always admired Federer's play and his style, but I I just connected more with Nadal and how visibly he displayed his emotions I think but I just I remember that match against Tip Zarovic it was like the most elegant player in the world in a street fight and he was showing how much it mattered to him and how much he cared and I think that's kind of relevant for this match because this is a match where I've always thought about the 08 Wimbledon final why it's so good is because it puts Nadal and Federer in different positions to what we usually see them in. We see Nadal with the lead and get tense, and we see Federer from behind have to fight and come through it. And we kind of see them as layered individuals. But during during this match, yeah, I was I was supporting Federer and he was losing. And my mum, who is half Spanish and a Nadal fan, just told me to go and watch it on another on another TV. We had two TVs in the house. I was banished to the other room because I was just in tears and just upset and, you know, that my man wasn't having his way and he always wins Wimbledon and now I'm supporting him for the first time and he's not winning Wimbledon. How can this be? You know, and just for all these reasons, I, I, I watched this match on my own because, um, <laughs> yeah, my behaviour was appalling. Matt the brat. I can't mm. imagine it. Mm. I really can't imagine it. Were you still blonde? No. I'm just trying to get a, a visual no. on this. No, and I wasn't wearing. I, I wasn't a glasses wearer then either. I think I mellowed when I when I <laughs> became a glasses wearer. You um your your recollection of that Tip Sarovich match at the Australian Open, of course, that oh wait Australian Open was was Novak Djokovic's um, maiden Grand Slam. He beat Federer in the semi-finals. Um, the the Australian Open that now well maybe not famous I was going to say famously maybe not but Federer now says he had mononucleosis during uh, the early portion of that year didn't he um so that's sort of a bit of a footnote to that that tournament um but yeah your recollections of that Tipsarovic match make me think you were so much more of a profound teenager than I was that you were having those sorts of thoughts about <laughs> tennis matches at that age those were not the thoughts, the sort of thoughts that I was having. I don't want to make you feel worse, but I was actually only 11. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Let's not get into what I was thinking at 11. So, to, to, to fill in the, the rest of the, the gaps in, in the year up until 
Wimbledon 2008. Djokovic has not come from nowhere, but I, I guess he's su- surprised us all at that stage by winning the 08 Australian Open. Federer losing in the semi-finals. He then went through a bit of a rough patch, Federer, didn't he? Post-Australia. Lost in the first round of Dubai to, to Andy Murray. Um, and it was in early March of that year that... Um, his agent, Tony Godsick, announced that he'd, he'd just had the diagnosis of mononucleosis and that the doctors thought he had been suffering with that for for a little while. So the sort of post-Australian Open, pre-French Open period was, was by Federer's standards, I suppose, a wee bit ropey. What's Nadal doing in that period, Matt? Well, Nadal had one of his best ever seasons on clay. He won the French Open without dropping a set. And most most notably, he thrashed Federer in the final. He only gave up four games in the final. It was it was scarring. It was devastating. Nadal's dominance in that, and Federer just looked like a like a broken man really during that final set. He almost, I think that's a match where Federer practically gave up actually in that in that third set. He just had no answers at all to Nadal's tennis, and then and then Nadal goes straight from winning Roland Garros without dropping a set to Queens and uh, I think I think there's a story that Queens had offered to give him a private a private helicopter from Paris to London and and Tony t- Tony said no no we've uh, we've paid for the Eurostar we're going on the Eurostar and uh, he got to got to London and went straight onto the practice court. Is that right, David? He certainly did. I, I didn't know the helicopter line, but it, it's quite possible. Um, I, I do remember him coming via the Eurostar. He would have done his media commitments on the, the Monday morning. And he arrived to Queen's Club in the afternoon, didn't even go to the hotel, just went straight to the Queen's Club. And the rain was clearly coming i remember the clouds gathering and the rain was coming and when he arrived all the players were starting to come indoors because the rain was was coming down and uh and rafa walks in straight up to the locker room gets his stuff on puts his bag over his shoulder and starts walking off towards the practice court whilst other players are walking past him the other way and saying congratulations, Rafa, on the French Open, blah, blah, blah. Wait, and where where are you going? Um, and so he marches out to the practice courts, um, where he finds Graham Kimpton, the head groundsman there, who's taking the nets down because it's raining, and he's he starts pleading with Graham to put them back up because he needs to practice. And this is this is literally the next day after winning the French Open, um, and Graham eventually just agrees to put them back up and he stands there in pouring rain it was pretty treacherous really you know what grass courts get like when they're wet and he just had to get his eye in and I remember feeling then and as the week progressed I mean the next day he seemed to spend about four hours in the players lounge asleep on the chairs uh, uh, just just feet up on about three chairs uh, whilst all the activities going on around him all the other players and the entourages are milling around i just felt all week he just seems on a mission he seems like he could run through brick walls in order to get what he wants and that week he he won against ivo karlovic in three tie break sets you can imagine what that would have been like he beat andy roddick who'd won the title i think the last four three of the last four years um uh, or four times in total and then 
he faces Djokovic in the final and it was two very, very tight sets and uh, eventually Nadal won. And it was, yeah, I felt that we, we were seeing him at another level, it felt, compared to what we'd ever seen before. And frankly, he was on a mission, wasn't he? Because I think we've all seen, certainly everybody that's seen Strokes of Genius will have seen it because it's featured in that documentary. But most tennis fans will have seen that clip of a young Rafael Nadal. What does he look about? 12, maybe 13. He's he's an emerging junior. He's somebody that's being talked about, but is a way away from breaking the junior ranks, uh, breaking the senior ranks, being asked what his goal is for his career. And he says... Wimbledon you know without hesitation he he says it and that would have been what 90s early 90s mid 90s deep in the era of Spanish players not even bothering with grass like literally just not even bothering to turn up and his stated mission for his career right from the start was to win Wimbledon and and from what you've said David it sounds like a bit like Simona Halep last year she just decided this is he decided this is the year this is the mm. year i'm i'm going to make it happen i've lost in two finals i'm ready now and to, to give some perspective nobody did this nobody came straight from winning the french open to queens and became a contender immediately nobody most people just pulled out and because at that time there was no gap between the two these days there's one week between them but usually a player gets to the semis or the final of the french open and often they just think you know what I, i'll i don't think i can handle going nadal came year after year he tr- this wasn't a one-off he tried it several years in a row and whenever he played well at queens he would play well at wimbledon that's how it seemed to be at that that stage and but this one was really extreme you know to actually get on the practice courts the very next day like that but and you know I'd heard that line that you mentioned that is in Strokes of Genius about how he'd answered that question as Wimbledon his favorite tournament I'd heard that years earlier and kind of brushed it off because I'd not I'd not seen him say that I'd not heard him say that and I thought that can't be quite right you know I, that doesn't doesn't i've never that doesn't make sense to me he's he's never and i and i really did think as well he's never going to win wimbledon you know not with that game uh this would have been a couple of years earlier even when he'd won the first french i just couldn't see how he could do it i think he lost his first uh, i think he lost it to Gilles muller in the in the first round of wimbledon in in maybe his first appearance there and i just i just couldn't imagine how he could ever compete on it which shows just well a how much i know and b how how good he became and it's it's interesting how you know this was their third meeting in the wimbledon final following the french open final they they played those back-to-back finals three years in a row and i think the first couple of years the sense was that federer had a better chance of beating nadal at Roland Garros because he'd managed to get a win over him on the clay in 2007 in Hamburg. And it felt like Federer had underperformed in those French Open finals, but maybe one day he would get him. But come 2008, I remember there being this kind of sense that maybe the ground was shifting slightly with what Nadal had done at Queens with the way he just generally had Federer's number. And the press were talking it up. Of of course they were. There was a tabloid, is Fed dead? (laughs) 
<laughs> was a was a tabloid headline pre Wimbledon that year. There was because he hadn't know, won a slam that year. Because he hadn't won a slam that year. His only his only titles were Estoril and Halla. Incidentally, he you know he brushed off the French Open and gone gone on and won Halla without dropping serve. Um, but there was there was this feeling that Nadal's time was perhaps coming, and for that to have been such a shift in in just two years goes to show how determined Nadal was to improve on grass and how he did change his game to suit the grass. Was that pre-tournament, is mm. Fed dead? Mm. I mean, he's a five-time defending champion. He goes he goes into the final on a 65-match winning streak on grass. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, he doesn't drop a set en route to the final, does he? We're talking wins over Habati, first round, Sodling, second round, Marcus Jukel, third round, Leighton Hewitt in the fourth round in straight sets. And okay, this is Leighton Hewitt a few years post being a, a Grand Slammer and, and world number one. But in in that in that match, um, someone shouts out to him in the crowd, don't they? Give, go easy on him or something. <laughs> Get, do him a favour and give him a game or something. It's so... It's so one-sided and almost awkward, these two players that were supposed... You know, Hewitt was supposed to be Federer's rival, wasn't he? And he was just an insignificance, a fly to be swatted by Roger Federer at this stage in his career. Um, quarterfinal against Mario Ancic, great grass court player, beaten Roger Federer on the centre court in the opening round a few years earlier, straight sets. Semi-finals, Marit Safin, straight sets. Fed is not dead no quite (laughs) (laughs) well said um and to be fair Nadal's run in two also very smooth sailing frankly he uh his only set dropped was against Ernest Gulbis um and you'd, you'd probably say he had the easier draw in the end than than Federer okay he he faced uh he faced Andy Murray in the quarterfinals but but with all due respect, Reiner Schuttler in the semi-finals for a place in in the final is it's a good draw, isn't it, at Wimbledon? Yeah, I mean Schuttler was ninety four in the world. I, I commentated on that, and he he had a good second set, made it into a tiebreak. But there was never a suggestion throughout that match that he was going to be a threat to Nadal. As you say, that was with all respect to him, that was a good draw for him in the semis. Um, so yeah, they they that was the beauty of the whole narrative really that they were both coming in and it felt like they were they were the perfectly uh placed players to clash in a in a final for the ages it couldn't have been better set up and i think the simplicity of the narrative is part of what makes the match so memorable because even if you didn't really know that much about tennis, you could get into this as a match. Okay, Federer wins on grass, Nadal wins on clay, but Nadal's getting closer on grass, and let's see if he can do it. It was it was really easy to build and to hype, and it was like you know Nadal coming to Federer's kingdom, trying to trying to topple him. It's like Infinity Wars, isn't it? Like a it, it is like a comic book style narrative. So so simplistic and easy to understand and to cut through the the Tennessee noise I suppose um 
and yeah, I mean, it was super duper hyped, wasn't it? The final, and and it always makes me edgy when a match is hyped to that extent because I feel like I worry it can only disappoint. And actually, I had the same edginess in anticipation of rewatching the match because it has become so part of tennis mythology that I thought it could only disappoint. If your expectations are that high, it can only be somewhat of a disappointment. And when I spoke to Mary Carrillo a few weeks ago and got her thoughts and recollections on the match, that was actually something I confessed to her, that I was anxious that it wouldn't live up to the mythology. Um, and she was very keen to uh, to calm my fears. The only other Wimbledon final I could compare that to is Borg McEnroe. And I have a bias, obviously, because I really liked Bjorn and, and John so much. And I really, I, look, it is, it, again, it, give me any, the matchups, the contrast is what makes great matchups in, in tennis, in boxing, you know, like when, when you, when there's such clear cut strengths to somebody's game and so you, you just know what has to happen and you know that it's going to, as great as it is, it'll probably end up being a war of attrition because they're both so damn good. Yeah, I think it. Um, I think it holds up. I really, I really think it does. You know, it was remarkable. By the time it was over, it, it was so dark that I think if they had played one more game, there the light would the lack of light would have meant that they'd have to come back the next day. Uh, Hawkeye had stopped working because it was too dark for Hawkeye to work anymore. I mean, it was come on. It had, it had every, it had every element, you know, coming back, going into a fit. Yeah, I think it, I think that, I think you can watch that with a bag of Cheetos in your lap and, and feel okay about it. I think it'll, I think you'll be, you'll be pleasantly surprised that it is as good as it's hoped. Well, I forgot the Cheetos. Um because Mary, they're not available in the United Kingdom, uh, but it, she's right. It did. It did live live up to the to the hype and the expectation. I'm I'm very pleased to report. Um, but yeah, it did live up to the hype, and it did have absolutely everything. I'm trying to, being the contrarian that I am, I'm trying to think: Is there anything you would have added to that match given the chance? Was there anything that it didn't have? All I can think of is aggro. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> we were whilst we were watching, we were willing for some player box aggro, weren't we? Because it was still in the days when the um, you had the two sets of player support camps sat in the same box on uh, on um, rows above and below one another. So you had poor. Uh, Tony Nadal's view of the match being obscured by Gavin Rossdale and Gwen Stefani, <laughs> <laughs> who were occupying the two prime seats in Roger Federer's players' box. I, do, I mean, it, it's scarcely believable that that's the way Wimbledon used to set up their players' box and that there wasn't more aggro. I mean, imagine if there had been some aggro involving Gwen Stefani. That's what the match was missing. <laughs> You're right, uh, and and I am amazed that it doesn't that it has never, to my knowledge, visibly happened. At least, I mean, people must say stuff under their breath that the other person in front who's cheering for the other bloke who's just thinking, "Will you shut up, or do you want to have this outside?" You know, how does that not happen? Would you rather be on the front row having to hear 
everything from the back row or would you rather be on the back row not having to to necessarily hear everything but knowing any all of any and all of your comments are being heard by the rival support camp i think you've got to be on the front row i think right you've got to, because <laughs> at least you can't see them fist pumping yeah yeah oh. at least if at least if people have got the good grace to celebrate wildly quietly <laughs> you don't know anything about it if they're behind you i mean to be to be fair maybe that's what gwen stefani was thinking throughout because she did have a spectacular poker face she looked bored throughout most <laughs> of the greatest match of all time it, it is the weirdest thing about this match that federer has got six prime <laughs> seats in his box <laughs> One of them goes to Gwen Stefani and one of them goes to Gavin Rossdale. Severin Luti is in the overflow <laughs> section. And Robert Federer, Federer's dad, will look back and know that he watched probably the greatest match his son has ever played sitting next to a bored Gwen Stefani. I mean, <laughs> it is bizarre. I, I also think if, you, if I was on the front row, I'd be very tempted to do one of those quite dramatic turnarounds <laughs> if somebody said something I didn't like. You know, sort of. I can't. <laughs> I just can't believe that isn't happening all the time, all yeah. the time. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm skipping ahead here, but we did comment on the fact that at the very end of the match, when Nadal climbs in to the player box. The image of Federer's dad applauding Nadal is probably one of my favourite tennis images of all time. So as much as we would like the aggro, that, <laughs> like, to have that moment, to have that recognition and that sportsmanship in that moment is also, is also a wondrous thing. Uh, and it should be said that there are moments, several moments in the match where you see one or the other box mm. applauding their op the opponent's shots. There's, there is a real sense of respect and and aff affection really for the opponent and for, and for the occasion for what they they all clearly know what this occasion is doing for their player even when it's not going their way in terms of the tennis david you, you've described you know the the opening point and the the ripple that goes around the place almost i imagine a bit of relief that like oh it is going to be good <laughs> it is going to oh, live yeah. it is going to live up to the hype um but and as much as it is high level right from the off, from both players, it is Rafael Nadal, the man that's never cracked Roger Federer on grass, that takes a two sets to love lead against the five-time defending champion, the man that's going for, for history and aiming to do something that still no one has done, which is win six in a row. Mm. And when that was happening, I mean, you asked what might this match have had to make it even better. Well, let's not forget that it really felt for a while as though it might all be over in straight sets. At two sets to love, I thought it was going to be over in three sets. I thought that Nadal, with all the evidence we had to that point, which is an absolutely chastening defeat of Roger Federer in the French Open final, the sort of the sort of defeat that, that you use the word scarred, Matt, and that's it, that stays with you. That made me think, well, I think he he has got his number now to a point where I don't I don't really think Roger Federer's got the answers here. I really thought that. And obviously we'd seen Nadal up close at Queen's. Um and that's why I think Federer's response 
is one of his great achievements. If you isolate into a match, he didn't win it, but how the hell did he come back? That That's how it would have felt to me at the time. If somebody had told me that we'd be talking about it 13 years on as the greatest match of all time at 6-4-6-4, I would not have believed you. And Nadal has triple break point at three all in the third set and, and doesn't doesn't take any of them. I actually watched the first three sets of this match yesterday and it was the first time I'd seen the start of this match for a while. I've seen the end a lot. I've seen the tie break a lot. Those are the iconic moments. But it really made me realise that... Federer kind of loses this match in those first two sets. He he doesn't take his chances at all. I mean, we, we've talked about this with Federer before, but he goes one of 12 on his first break points. Nadal goes three of four. And, you know, Federer's got wow. so many, so many chances in those first two sets. He's 4-1 up in the second set and loses it 6-4. And there were just a couple of things that that really struck me. The first was was those big points that I've talked about. And the second was Federer's lack of pure strategy that he that he didn't have against Nadal in, in this in this period. I watched briefly Eurosport was showing their semi-final from last year, a couple of days ago, when Federer beat Nadal in four sets in the Wimbledon semis. And the liberation in his mind and the clarity of his thinking is so obvious in that match. He knows exactly what to do and it's just a matter of executing. But back in 2008, Federer wasn't sure what to do really against Nadal. And I think he says something really fundamental in Strokes of Genius, which is it took me a while to embrace the idea of a rival. And I I don't think he'd quite realized yet that he needed to properly adapt his game to Nadal he's he's kind of stubborn in certain areas and yet in others full of doubt about how to play and his his mind is scrambled when he plays Nadal I think John Wertheim has has described it as like like someone having to drive on the other side of the road in a foreign country it's like it's still tennis but it's just not quite as natural to him nothing quite flows and Nadal is in his head and Federer's not thinking clearly in the biggest moments. The doubt comes in. And for someone like Federer, whose whose game is normally so perfectly calibrated and so instinctive, and then you've got Nadal down the other end who's able to sustain his winning strategy against Federer more easily, there's a, there's a real sharp contrast and it, and it comes out in those big moments. But And I also imagine that there's a bit of arrogance about that position, that attitude from Federer at the time, because I, I can imagine that he could kind of compartmentalise the clay and, and the French Open, just as I imagine Pete Sampras had to, you know, his his inability to win at the French Open in his own mind and in in reality didn't didn't affect too much his his overall dominance and the perception of him as well at the time he was considered the greatest greatest male player of all time and the the records reflected that and I think at that stage of Federer's career you know he was still compartmentalizing Nadal as somebody that was getting the better of him on clay but that was compartmentalized in his own mind and he was still the greatest player in, in in the world, the best player, and particularly on grass. I play my game, I play it well, and I win. And up until this match and this moment, that was true, even against Nadal. But this was this was different. Nadal playing in that Wimbledon final was different to what we'd seen before, and it was 
it was something that everyone was remarking on and, and something that you spoke to, to Larry Stefanke about that, David, about what was different about Nadal on grass in 2008 to previous years. Rafa has a great gift of developing and evolving as a tennis player. I mean, I would say Rafa, because grass, you can't play 30 feet behind the baseline, David. He started playing close to the baseline. And he he finally said, okay, I'm going to try to take the ball on the return right off the baseline. I'm not giving up space. And he, he could play that way. I mean, his footwork started to get um, a lot more efficient going to his uh, right on his backhand side. He wasn't stumbling around crossing over. His forehand, he was just step not even stepping just kind of just turning and whacking and and when you play great servers like Roddick you know like Sampras and you don't give up space and you learn how to play return a little bit more like Andre did or Connors you're able to uh, because of his his ability to fight he's such a great competitor but he knew I think that he couldn't give up that much space he actually transformed as a tennis player to play grass court tennis and I'm not talking about coming to net. I'm talking about the return of serve. That was the thing I remembered. If he has that court position and he goes through the entire tournament, because this was before the tournament started, people are going to be in trouble because that's the best I'd ever seen this guy return in, in practice on a grass court. And he was decisive. I don't know if he was just irritated that he, his record on grass or whatever it was, he didn't feel like he was, you know, he was always running around trying to chase balls on the grass. But that one specific year, I remember he changed his court position on the return of serve. And that was his biggest asset. And, and I remember him winning that, that thing in the dark. And, uh, but I thought that was his biggest change as a tennis player. And that's not easy to do. Um, he still falls back going backwards and playing certain ways that, you know, give me more time. But on grass, when you play a guy like Federer and you give him, you know, Federer time and you start hitting, you know, grenades in the middle of the court, he's going to punish you. I mean, so he didn't do that in the, in that, that whole fortnight watching his matches. Nadal. And that was one of the few times. But I admire a guy that will actually change his game to, you know, give him a chance to win a major title. That's what great champions do. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Points to Larry both for excellent analysis and for sublime pronunciation of Nadal. (laughs) Nadal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I love talking to Larry about tennis. I love talking to Larry about anything. He just makes me feel energized. I mean, it makes me feel like I could beat Nadal. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, but um, just picking up from what he said and also what you were describing in terms of Federer's career to that point, he, he'd had a five-year period, really, apart from when he played Nadal on clay, when, yeah, he was happy to play you at your own game we got that from Paul Anacombe when he was describing the dinner that Federer had with Sampras when Sampras couldn't understand why he didn't come to the net at Wimbledon anymore and the gist of it was Federer's thinking well everybody plays from the back now so I thought I'd do that and beat them like that you know because I'm best at everything that was that's basically that was the truth and suddenly you see it in this match that it's not enough that he's He's playing against Nadal and he's 6-4, 6-4 behind. And in order to get back into it, oh my word, he is having to pull the trigger and go for things that I just don't think he'd had to worry about any any against anybody else in his career. His his baseline level would, would have been enough, his standard foundation of tennis. And against Nadal, he's pushing him to to become a better player. He really is. And you see it before your eyes in that match. Yeah, Federer's kind of his own worst enemy because he's so good that he can play the wrong way and get away with it often, or he can he can still push Nadal playing the wrong way, and I think that's why he becomes stubborn because occasionally he will connect with a backhand drive return that gets on Nadal's backhand. And he takes over the point, and it's like, oh, I can do it. This is this is what I need to do, but he can't do it often enough. And in the big moments, he can't do it quite either. And I think the other thing Nadal had done, as well as his return, was also his serve. I think we've watched some Nadal matches from 2005 and 2006 recently, okay, on clay. But by 2008, he is serving up at 115 miles an hour, which 
I think they brought up a stat during the replay of the match was 15 miles an hour harder than when he first played at Wimbledon. That is a that is a huge difference and it it allows him to just be more comfortable in his own service games and not give Federer quite so many opportunities to tee off and relax. And I think that mindset is so those contrasting mindsets are so deeply ingrained in in both of them. I mean, Federer with his clear natural talent, and that's not to to diminish the the hard work and everything else that goes into it. I know sometimes people think because of his natural ability, people underestimate the the effort um, and the the struggle that's gone into to him being a champion. But again, there's a line from from Nadal in Strokes of Genius when they're sort of trying to get to the bottom of his incredible mental toughness and mental toughness that that John McEnroe on the documentary says for him exceeds Jimmy Connors he says you know I I was a rival of Jimmy Connors and and for me Rafael Nadal is a better competitor and a better fighter than than even Jimmy Connors Um, and Nadal says I wasn't good enough to to just rely on my game and my tennis I believed that I had to be mentally the strongest in order to try and compete. Whereas Federer had this this innate seeming belief that his tennis was always good enough. Mm. Certainly once he'd come out of the the wilderness years, those early years where he's trying to find out who he is. And then once he's got that first Wimbledon and the first dominance begins there's just no sign of it ending and he really has this this hold over everybody and and his talent was able to then come out because as he described he'd his physicality was allowing his talent to flourish and and his mind was not throwing it away mid-match which is what had happened for several years um but i love that evolution of Nadal I love that evolution of Federer in response to Nadal the way he has to react and realize well I've got a couple of choices I either just give it in and think well I've I've made millions and I've got a great life and I've won all these Grand Slam titles you can have it now or I dig in and I reinvent um, and that, and that's just added to the greatness of the two players and this match is that in microcosm Mm. isn't it it is Federer digs in and okay doesn't win but levels it at two sets apiece and does so the hardest possible way via two tie breaks and and the second of those tie breaks in the fourth set I mean potentially taking McEnroe Borg 1980 aside for a moment is is probably one of the best ever tie breaks in terms of quality maybe McEnroe Borg edges it for drama because of the sheer length of it. Um, But in terms of quality, you'd probably give it to this. I certainly think the the latter stages of it, when Nadal has set himself up with his first, with his match point, with one of the all-time great forehand passing shots off a full-blooded forehand from Federer down the line, curls it with, with... incredible velocity and just has everybody gasping that set him up match point and then the second one of them he serves out wide he has the midcourt forehand he hits the hook forehand cross court as he's 
won so many points against Roger Federer over the years, and Federer just nails the cleanest struck backhand winner down the line, down a tiny corridor that is slow, shown in slow motion, and you see Federer's eyes as he watches that ball go down and the realisation that he, he he's hit it perfectly. Oh, I, I know allowing for context... And also with the caveat that he's extremely biased, my brother thinks that's the best tennis shot ever hit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's it's all the more brilliant for the fact that we've seen Federer be fallible on big points in the first couple of sets. And then when he really needs it, the biggest point of all, he comes up with it. And, and as you said, David... If Nadal was planning a match point against Federer, he would have come up with something like that. First serve into the backhand, forehand into the backhand, right, can you pass me? And Federer's, Federer just says, yes, I can. And you can you can see them probing the upper limits of each other's games. And it, it's my favourite stretch of tennis probably ever, those two points. And then and then the point after where Federer, Federer has a spring in his step and jumps round his backhand and hits his forehand with more velocity and violence and gets his own set point and then wins it when the doll misses a return it's it is so transcendent i think as a as a little spell and there's also the echoes of borg McEnroe again because in strokes of genius nadal says the line that Borg gives after the fourth set tie break where he says, that was my, the worst moment of my life on a tennis court. It's exactly the same expression, exactly the same analysis. And both players somehow managed to overcome that and then win the fifth set. So the parallels are there, both in terms of quality, drama, and also what would follow. And it's also the first time and the only time Certainly to that point, anyway, that I'd ever seen Rafa Nadal choke. Uh, he's 5-2 up in that tie break. He's serving. He double faults. He smiles at his box, which is the giveaway. He t it's telling them, I'm really, really nervous. I can't, I'm not sure I can handle this. Then he puts a limp backhand into the bottom of the net. Two points in a row against the serve that would have won him the match. And, and he admits in the documentary that when he steps up the line to, to serve at 5-2, he thinks, oh, I'm probably going to double fault here, <laughs> which is an extraordinary admission from Rafa. And actually, the second serve clips the tape and dribbles over the net and so nearly s struggles in just onto the line. It's so close to being a, uh, a let on the second serve, but alas... It it wasn't. It was a double fault, and thank goodness it wasn't because um, it it gave Federer a lifeline in that tiebreak, and uh, it led to the fifth set. And I think by that point, even most of the Nadal fans inside centre court were cheering for Federer because there was a recognition that that this was something extremely special, and that. That it was owed to tennis fans everywhere that it should go on for as long as possible. It was certainly fitting, wasn't it, to to go into a fifth set? Um, but uh, when they when they sat down at the end of that fourth set, 
I remember thinking that that was the moment. I mean, I suppose it's this case for for Nadal and the case for anybody. That was the moment that rocked my perception of what what might happen because I thought Nadal was the favourite because of the way he'd been playing in the run up and because of that uh, that French Open match and the two set lead, etc. But I just thought at that point, how do you win from here? How do you win if you're Rafael Nadal and you've lost the two previous finals against the same guy on the same court the last two years? You've had a two-set lead. You've lost that two-set lead. You've had match points. You haven't taken them. He stopped you. How do you How do you not have a complete meltdown at this point? Because that feels like the most natural thing in the world to happen. And that tells you a lot about this guy and his ability to just put all that behind him it's one of the biggest best achievements of Nadal's career I think I'm reminded of what Mary said the other day about um he chokes but he wins anyway <laughs> you know and, and he and he and he overcomes himself in that moment it which is which is the greatest thing you can do really and and an opponent playing as well as Federer is by this stage speaking of great tennis achievements while we were watching that full set tiebreak together um, earlier on this morning, Matt was able to tell us what was going to happen in every point before it happened. There are 18 points in that tiebreak. Federer wins it 10-8. Do you think you could narrate it without the pitches, Matt? <laughs> I, I was getting the feeling that you possibly could. I mean, I have watched it an awful lot. We used to, we used to have, we used to go down to south of france for holidays and we used to drive and I, I used to take a portable dvd player and literally every year i would just take the 2008 wimbledon final and just watch it over and over <laughs> again normally just starting in the fourth set so i you know so i could just see the the best moments but uh yeah i've, I've it's not a coincidence that i know that moment very well i've just seen it so much talk us through the fifth then <laughs> point, point point by, by point, point if you please <laughs> well, <laughs> well take it take us up until the rain delay at well, two I, all i think the early stages of the fifth set are the only stage in the match where there's a slight lull actually mm. because i think at the start of every other set there's an urgency for federer to get back in the match so at the start of the fifth is probably the only time where there is a little bit of a lull uh, Federer presses a little bit on the dial serve, but doesn't break through. And then it, as you said, the rain delay comes at two all deuce on Federer's serve. Nadal has got to deuce and then the second rain delay of the match comes at just at this moment. And at this point, the clock is ticking. You know, we're getting we're getting late into the evening and there's one eye on the clock that this match might not finish tonight. And just I think that that whole scene at the end of the match, the fact that it finishes in dark, that there was a race against the clock all elevates the drama and the tension and it adds this sort of cinematic aspect to the match. Um, and it, I think that's another reason why it stayed in so many people's minds. It's so iconic. And of course, that rain delay gave the players an opportunity to to see their teams, to speak to their coaches, to, to speak to whoever they like. Um, well, Federer didn't have a coach. 
Well, yeah, he, uh, his uh, Seren Luthi was there, I guess. I think he had uh, briefly saw Merca. Maybe he went and had a jam <laughs> with Gavin Rossdale. Who knows? Um, uh, but uh, we know what Nadal was doing because David's been speaking to his PR manager, Benito Perez Barbadillo, and uh, this is what he remembers about that rain delay at Tool. There's one thing I remember about that final. You know, if I'm in that position and I and I lose the second, the, the fourth set, and I go back to a locker room because of the rain, I mean, there's not a, there's not a lot of people who would recover from that. And uh, he had match points and all that stuff. And I asked my mo, who is sitting next to me, and I said, my mo is his, phys- his physical trainer. Sorry, he's a physiotherapist, and that's the one who's always with Rafa. And at the time at the locker room, it was only Tony and my mo allowed to go in. And I asked him, how is he feeling? And he said to me, you know, he's feeling great. He says that he's not going to lose. He's going to win. I mean, at least he's going to try. He's not going to lose because of him. And so, you know, he's fine. And I'm like, wow, really? I mean, because I would think he would be so, you know, so not, not the words, not, my, not depressed, but so down. It's so difficult to turn around. And so it's just, you know, that gave us a lot of confidence also in the box to to cheer. And it's also true that at the time the box was different from today because we had Federer's family just uh, in the row below us. Um, so it, it clearly the atmosphere was different than when you were only you. And uh, it's easy to cheer because you, you have to have respect, obviously, for you always have to respect, but you have not closer. So it's even, you know, even more, if you can say. Uh, so anyway, it was just uh, it's just an unbelievable the feeling. What is it like being in the player box? There's so much tension. So, so much tension going on. I mean, it's just, you're so nervous. I mean, probably they have, they live in a different way. They're playing and they're less nervous. They're, they're nervous at certain moments, but not all the time. I, I, in my case, I see the dangers all the time. So I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty negative, I guess. And uh, it's just, you have a lot of tension. You just try to cheer him up. Sometimes you can feel the player is not playing well and you just try to help him by cheering to him. And sometimes it's just better to be quiet because, you know, he'd rather focus and, and just think on um, what he has to do. So it, it is, it, there is a lot of tension in the box and these long matches and, and this, all these uh, switches that goes in, in, in the game. It's just, it's just tough sometimes. I ended up exhausted last year at the final, the US Open final, and it was going pretty well. The first two sets, as you know, and on the break in the third, and suddenly the whole thing turned around and, uh, I remember I ended so, so tired that match. It was like if I was running. And and we had to do a lot of press. I mean, you're very, very familiar to that, and, uh, David. So I think it took us two or three hours to do press. So he got to the dinner at a decent time for Spain, but not a good decent time for the UK. So it was, I, don't, I think it was not even decent for Spain. I think it was around maybe midnight or um, even 1 a.m. And then I remember he he took a flight, and I think it was. Uh, uh, I hate to say the name because they're not they're not a good airline, but they, he took an easy jet flight to to back to Spain to Mallorca. So he didn't sleep. He came back from dinner and then straight to the airport. I love that. Rafa wins Wimbledon and takes an easy jet. <laughs> well, they were very friendly actually to get him on the plane. <laughs> But the Wimbledon champion just took an easy jet flight back to Mallorca because it was the easiest way to get home. He giveth and he taketh away to EasyJet. They get a mention, but 
also a slagging off. <laughs> Quite Love like it. Easy Jet, for the record. Oh, so okay. you, you're, you're going to be on there when you win your next Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, it's like when Rihanna took the tube to the O2, except not a PR stunt by the sounds of things. <laughs> That's a great little story. It, well, he, I mean, he's a homebody, isn't he? He he yeah. he he's this extraordinary champion with this incredible star quality that can look otherworldly, and then moments after he steps away from the court all he wants to do is to retreat away into this simple ordinary life in Mallorca and that's that's one of the most intriguing appealing things about him yeah no it's it's lovable it's an endearing quality that he has and and you see it actually at tennis tournaments the way he treats people you never see and you do with some players I don't think you do with either of these two but particularly in Nadal, you never see him behave a certain way for the cameras and then once they're off, he changes. He is somebody who goes up to all the, the drivers and the and the people that are looking after the, the food or whatever them people might be doing and Rafael Nadal is decent to them. He's he's polite and and nice to people um, and normal, you know, and, uh, and, and he's never lost that from what I've seen. We didn't know how normal until just now. <laughs> Easy jet normal. Um, just going back to the match and the the fifth set. Throughout our watchathon this morning, we were we were gasping and commenting on Federer's forehand, weren't we? Making assessments of how different it was then to 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 how it is now i mean it's still a heck of a weapon now but back then it was the most it was the most lethal single shot in the sport you know maybe apart from ivo karlovich's serve or something but it was it was a fearsome weapon and the way he could just unleash it seemingly out of nowhere with this brute force injection of pace was made you tremble but just as we ended up saying when we were reliving Nadal and Federer's was Rome their 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 Rome final, it's a live by the sword, die by the sword thing with Federer's forehand because it is that shot that costs him from Juice um, serving at seven games all. It is two forehand errors that concede the break of serve to Nadal and. On match point, it is a forehand unforced error into the net that concedes the match to Nadal. Now, obviously, Rafael Nadal is having a big, big say in all of that. But the forehand is decisive for Federer in ways both negative and positive. Mm. He he relied on it more then than he does now. I think he he's got more combinations. He's got more ways to beat you these days. He crowds the court. He takes your time away. Back then, it was about setting that thing up, and if he set it up, the point was over. And he was looking for the forehand more often, I think, than he does now in that in that regard. But I do feel like the the strides that Nadal had taken between the '06 match you mentioned and this one are significant he was such a complete player he was he was dominating most of the rallies I thought and Federer was needing that forehand and having to sharp shoot his way out of trouble he was having to he was throwing everything he'd got at Nadal and I felt like Nadal was was handling it 
And that's that was a shock to the system for Federer, who whose own level throughout, even the fifth set, kept on elevating, kept just in in trying to find a way to stay with Nadal. And in the end the 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 wave of Nadal became too strong and he couldn't fight against it anymore. And we now know it's it's seven all that that the decision had been made by the powers that be the referee that absolute maximum regardless of where they were in the match they would only play two more games we're unsure whether that's something the players were made aware of it's certainly not something that's mentioned in the commentary um of the coverage that we just watched which would have been the 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 bbc commentary but we now know that had it not ended at at nine seven in the fifth they would have had to come back on the Monday. And rightly the, so, because you, you couldn't see the ball, pretty much. No, it's the darkest I've ever seen tennis being played on centre court. If you consider that yesterday we, we had highlights shown of the Pete Sampras against Pat Rafter final, where the presentation was conducted in the dark, and that one finished just before nine o'clock. Well, this one was being played well after nine o'clock by this time. And... You can't see it on TV. It just doesn't come across because the the exposure of the cameras compensates for it and it looks like daylight. When you were out there, and I remember going and having a look from courtside, you re- it really wasn't playable virtually. I, I think Federer didn't really think it was playable anymore. And I actually, at the end of the match, I went out on doorstepping duty managed to doorstep John McEnroe coming out of the NBC box got a line from him and I also came across former referee Alan Mills who'd only retired the year before and it was the it wasn't him in charge anymore and I said I interviewed him and I asked him what did you think about the decision to keep going uh, to to the to the end of 9-7 and he said I would have stopped it I would have stopped it at seven hmm. games all because uh or, or at least a point where you could stop it because i just felt that it wasn't playable anymore so had he been in charge if he's good to that it would have been carrying on the next day because there was no roof there were no lights that you could play under anymore that was still to come the following year the the thing i find interesting is that neither player seems to be pushing for it to be stopped usually in that situation the player that doesn't feel they're on top the player that doesn't feel they have the momentum with them given the opportunity to get the thing stopped so they can come back tomorrow they're going to want to do that so whether it's that they were both so completely in the zone or whether it was cuz nadal was determined to get on that easy jet flight come hell or high water or whether it's because they each felt like they were in the ascendancy, neither was pushing for it to be called off. Yeah, my instinct is that it's it's the latter. I think mm. Nadal was Nadal was pressing more in those final few games. He's the one getting the chances on Federer's serve, but Federer's surviving and he's got the scoreboard lead. He's got that pressure that he can apply to Nadal and I think if if it had been stopped that would have been slightly diminished I think he probably thought I can I can catch him here you know catch him just at the last minute um but yeah I mean imagine just imagine if it had gone to the next imagine next day. the reaction of the crowd when <laughs> yeah. Pascal Maria in this alternate universe makes the announcement that play has been suspended and what would they have done would they if given all the crowd the opportunity to come back the next day would they have made it a people's monday 
what would know. have happened? That's, that's a great question. I mean, there this, would have been this, mutiny. This crowd. I mean, we we talked about the Goran Rafter crowd as the best atmosphere that we've ever seen, but this was. Because I think it was so even, okay, maybe Federer has a bit more of the support, but it felt very, very even. And and the the TV director was having to cut away from the main camera because when winners were being hit, people were leaping to their feet with their arms in the air and obscuring the view of the TV camera on the court. Um, such was the, the level of enthusiasm and excitement within this crowd. Shortage of inflatable kangaroos, though. Yeah, I mean, come on. That was the yeah. other thing that was missing. You know, that's a big loss. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you're right about it being even, though. I think it's actually almost this loss, in a way, that really humanised Federer, I think, to a lot of people. And to see the sadness in his eyes at the end, I think he actually ended up with more support after this match in his career because you you see his flaws you see his racket skills try to overcome them but you know in a way in this perverse way that a loss can burnish a reputation i think i think it does for federer in this match and he actually he actually becomes a more popular player after it in a weird way he gives the shortest ever answers i've seen federer give in his post-match on-court interview with Sue Barker. She, she does a great job. It's only two questions and that's entirely appropriate. And he he manages not to crack and he manages to say all the right things, but he is right on the edge, isn't he, Roger yeah. Federer, clutching that plate yeah. which <laughs> would and, spit out the word. And by now, Bud Collins' job has been taken over by John McEnroe for NBC, and he doorsteps Federer just outside the locker room, and Federer is brought out to him. And the only question, or the only, in fact, it wasn't a question, it was a statement from John McEnroe, is that I, I want to thank you. You've just, as a tennis player, you've just played the best match I've ever seen. Is that any comfort at all? And Federer goes, a little bit. Um, and that's basically the interview. <laughs> and he goes back in and he gives him a hug and he goes back inside and that's the interview. Um, but yeah, I, I, I got the sense Federer, the, there was a bit of irritation at not stopping, but then he just lost. So, you know, I think, I, I, I mean, you're right. In logically speaking, if you are the man serving first, and we've seen that how many times uh, that you're, you have the advantage by, by serving first, then, yeah, it would have taken a big thing to, to be pushing to come off at that point. And, of course, Nadal clambers straight into the player's box in his moment of victory after after collapsing flat on his back on the ground in one of the most iconic visual moments in Wimbledon history. After the embrace with Federer at the net, He it's the most direct route, I think, to a player's box that we've seen a winning player take. We've seen many different versions of the player box scramble over the past couple of weeks, but Rafa just goes like sort of rock climbing direct route, <laughs> <laughs> embraces everyone in the box, including a number of members of, of Federer's team. As you say, Matt, the, the look of, it looks like pride on Robert Federer's face. It really, it looks like fatherly pride it's it's that sort of warmth of expression um he gets a he gets a, a 
handshake from Tony Godsick. You know, everybody knows what they've just witnessed. And then Nadal, like King Kong, strides across the roof of, I think it's the NBC commentary booth, isn't it? Which is at court level and sort of below the player's box in order to get to the perimeter of the royal box. This area that, you know, not too many years before they were having to bow in front of. And now Nadal is striding into it like a, like a, yeah, like a King Kong-esque imposter and just casually embracing the uh, the prince and princess of Spain. Um, before <laughs> and after the sweaty embrace, turns his back on them and descends again onto the court to collect his trophy and uh, have his own chat with Sue Barker, during which he's he's barely able to express anything coherently, is he? I mean, there's a couple of things going on there. His, his English wasn't as good and as fluent then as it is as it is now. But I mean, he's just it's all too much, isn't it? And and he's also exhausted. Um, so all all he's sort of able to do is do a sort of Oscars-esque sort of list of thank yous culminating with the Prince and Princess of Spain. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. no, that's great. And, and it's made all the worse by for Federer and the fact that he's uh, he's got to put on his... His cardigan. Which it is an outfit re- that I mean, I would win. say barely works. As you know, I'm not a fan of <laughs> I'm not a fan of the cardigan win or lose. But it definitely doesn't work if you lose. No. It a doesn't. gold trimmed cardigan. And apparently only two hundred and thirty of them were available to buy at £260 each. And they were 230 of them made to coincide exactly with the number of weeks that he had been number one consecutively at the time. And then, of course, he didn't he didn't technically lose his number one ranking when he lost this Wimbledon final, but it was about, I think, seven weeks later he did. And it was kind of symbolic, this moment of... Well, Andrew Castle says it in commentary, a new man at the head of men's tennis. And yet here's Federer in his in his cardigan to, that has literally been made to celebrate the fact that he's the number one. It's all, it's all slightly awkward. You can kind of understand why he just assumed that he wouldn't lose. There. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that he's going to. Uh, I'm... Yeah. S- I'm... What a horrible footnote to end <laughs> end our gi- tale of the best ever match on. Can I can I give you uh, a, a nicer one? Yes, please. Uh, the next flight that I took, uh, in which I saw the Nadal camp, was in Australia, and I happened to be on the same plane as uh, Tony Nadal, who spent the entire flight, twenty four hours, watching and rewatching the Wimbledon final, like Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, Nadal comes up to his chair and just sits on the armrest and just watches a bit of it with him. <laughs> <laughs> and then gets bored and then goes and does something else. And Tony just sits there and carries on watching. That's amazing, isn't it? And it's, you know, at the at the time, we we thought it, it would be a, a defining moment in a defining rivalry for the sport. And it's so pleasing that... that 
that time has proven that to be even more true than we thought it to to be in the moment. You know, it was it was a completely iconic match and moment. People talk about it taking tennis to a new level in terms of the quality of play, but I think what it did more than that is it's it's a groundbreaking match because it takes tennis to a new place because until then there'd been this rivalry between Federer and Nadal but there'd been a pattern to their matches and this match left you with the feeling that nothing was really certain anymore and that's a very exciting place to be in as a fan because suddenly new possibilities were open and the narrative had changed and it happened because Nadal went to Federer's court and beat him on it and that is, you know, that is something that we've then seen develop over the years with Djokovic going to Federer and Nadal's court and beating them on it and owning his own court. And it's, it, this match is kind of the start of that series of, of matches. Yeah. And there's a moment, there's a, as Federer is just about to depart the court and he's had his photos taken with Nadal with his plate and he's just about to, uh, to depart the court and leave Nadal to to the limelight, and he just gives him one last embrace. And I'm sure it's I'm sure it's accidental or whatever. But just as he's leaving, he goes to pat Nadal's arm, and he also sort of pats the trophy, just to touch it one last time. It's like he's saying, "I'll see you next year." <laughs> <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and he did, much to uh, Andy Roddick's chagrin. And and of course we uh, it, that moment of Federer despair led to the the all-time great Federer line to Andy Roddick in in the final of 2009, I know how you feel, man. <laughs> and Andy Roddick's response, well, how many, how many of these are you won? <laughs> Let's give the final word, shall we, to Chris Clary of the New York Times, who is so often the best person to, to put something in a wider context and to do so... Um, with masterful words. So here is Chris on on that moment and that rivalry. It's been fun to watch and get to know those guys along the way and watch them grow up together and grapple with each other and grapple with um, what their rivalry means on a broader level to a lot of people outside of tennis and and recognize the you know the value in that. And I think that's it's it's really a, journalistically and and emotionally it's it's a great journey because they really have had a chance to. Uh, circle each other and obviously they didn't really speak a common language very well for a long time um, and that, that made it different too i know roger couldn't really sit down with rafa and have a probably in-depth conversation because rafa's english wasn't good enough for a long time but they've gotten there now and i, I interviewed them both at the labor cup in prague we shared a van ride for the city and um obviously roger was very grateful that rafa made the effort to be there and all those sorts of things but it was just a very natural vibe for two guys who have fought for the biggest prizes for so long i mean you can't fake that and you're in a van for 30 40 minutes talking to a journalist and you're just uh cracking jokes and giving each other compliments and all very natural and i think that's i can't say it's unique i mean look how chris and martina have bonded through their rivalry over the years but it's certainly special it's quite something isn't it i was th i was just looking at another match on our list is borg and macadro and those two always had a bond as 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 intoxicating as their rivalry was they they i guess i almost look at it like boxers who've just beaten each other to 
you know, with an inch of their life and then fall into each other's arms at the end. They, they share something that we, we can't really appreciate. Yeah, and I, I think the other thing about this that's interesting is, I mean, to Roger's credit, I mean, he was on top of the world. And Nadal emerged you know, pretty early in his dominant run as a threat on clay, for sure. And soon emerges a threat elsewhere. And, and I think Roger, despite some moments along the way of frustration and, you know, anguish at times when after the Aussie Open final and when he said, uh, you know, it's just killing me or whatever, what exactly the quote was, I feel like he's handled it all very well. And that's a lot has a lot to do with the way Rafa carries himself and, and the respect Rafa shows. Some would argue that it's, you know, tactical. Rafa was very smart about it and didn't want to rile Roger up. But I think it was genuine. And I think... I think Roger could could respect the way Rafa approached competition, approached him as a as a fellow uh, top athlete, and um, and I think he could sense the respect on the other side. And he, I think he liked the way that Rafa handled. He, you know, despite Rafa has his quirks with the some of the delays and different things that he does, and there was concerns about the on on court coaching from uh, Tony from the stands. I think irritated Roger at times through the years, but generally just the way that Rafa conducted himself. And the way Rafa talked about Roger, I think, uh, diffused some of the tension that might otherwise have, have surfaced. And fast forward 12 years and here they are on, on 20 and 19 slams with most people probably predicting that by the end of this year, that will be 20 and 20. And no, that is not a debate we are going to get into now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Matt. Who has the task of trying to follow tomorrow the 08 Federer Nadal final? Uh, that would be Andy Murray winning Wimbledon for the first time in 2013 against Novak Djokovic. Spoiler. <laughs> well, I feel like <laughs> if you don't know that, why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> it's a worthy one to follow it with. I mean... Uh, that was a pleasure, a pleasure to re-watch it, relive it, talk about it with you both. And um, yeah, I mean, where better to go next than, uh, than than a moment like that? Two more to go, folks. We're headed into the uh, the final straight. That means two more episodes for Gerald, our lovely mascot, to to bask in his limelight. He looks he looks pretty adept at basking, from what I'm seeing on Instagram. <laughs> Um, loving a bit of uh, Gerald posing on the gram uh, he's doing us proud is Gerald so uh, good on you and enjoy the final weekend and yeah join us for our penultimate Wimbledon Relived 2020 tomorrow we'll see you then Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.